Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Exalted Christ's One Accord podcast. And on today's episode, we are talking about systematic theology. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it uh, a little bit of both? And uh, so once again, I've got my friends with me. Let's go ahead and introduce Pastor Eric Love. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, and it's good to talk with you guys today. Yeah, well, always uh, always happy to, to have you uh, on board for the discussion. And uh, let's bring in our, our third team member for today, uh, everyone's favorite almost Reformed Baptist, Greg Churchley. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning, guys. How are you? Yeah, doing, doing, doing well, doing well. And so uh, you mentioned in our first episode that uh, as we were kind of laying out some of our theological backgrounds, that you are almost a Reformed Baptist and that there was uh, one word in the, the confession that, uh, that you kind of hold to that you take issue with. And I even got some feedback afterwards. People were telling me that uh, they were dying to know what that one word is. And so as we talk about systematic theology, it sure makes sense that we would kind of dig into this topic and that we would understand, you know, you are part of a, a, a group that uh, maybe you can't be fully titled by simply because of uh, systematic theology. So beneficial, not how, how do you view that kind of from your own personal perspective? Yeah, when I when I think about systematic theology and its benefits or its down downsides, I don't think it's something that can be avoided. Um, as far as I can tell, as I read scripture, God systematizes. Uh, he he made things according to their kinds. He groups things, and that's what we're talking about in systematic theology. It we're talking about taking ideas clearly presented as they are in the Bible grouping them together in ideas, into categories, and and trying to create some logical structure around that. Um, so as far as I can tell, that is part of who we are, how God made us. Uh, so um, that being said, it can't be bad inherently. Um, now what we can do is in our sinfulness, we can turn that very good, very natural thing into something uh, destructive, something divisive, and, and we sure do that. Um, so I would never want to steer us away from systematizing, of structuring, of, of organizing our beliefs, because not only is it good, it's, it's inevitable and probably necessary. Uh, so that's where I would, my initial response. Yeah, yeah so in your, in your case, then, uh, you have systematized and you are, by your own words, almost in full agreement. Um, so what is the, you know, is there a reason for us to do that on our own or, you know, many, many people, they just take the system and they don't really do the work that maybe you have done of, of trying to systematize your own thoughts. And I, I think probably there is some pushback. Some people would say, well, no, it's not inevitable. I don't, I don't think about these things necessarily. I attend a church. Here's the doctrinal statement. And I agree with it. I was raised in this particular way. This is the denomination that I am. And, and I adhere to this group. And, and some people would even say, if you want to know what I believe, you got to, you got to ask the pastor, ask the elders. So, um, you know, in your case, you take issue with one word. You're told, at least by some in your camp, that you can't really be a full member of that. Um, so, is that is that helpful, or is that is that a hindrance to the unity in the body of Christ? In your in your view, well, in especially as we talk about systematic systematizing, uh, structuring, organizing theology, it's important to understand we're we're talking about organizing our understanding of God, um, our knowledge. Of God, and so um, while I think it is helpful, and and I would never want to do away with everyone that came before us. Um, again, Chesterton, I'll quote him. He, I believe it was uh, Chesterton who said, "We will have the dead at our councils. We won't be ruled by the tyranny of the living." Hmm. Uh, so 
good, sound, faithful men and women have come before us and, and are helpful in, or can be helpful in shaping our thoughts. But when we swallow that entire system, hook, line, and sinker, understand you're swallowing everything good along with anything potentially bad. And so I would definitely encourage people, yeah, do, do your work, do your own homework instead of, instead of taking that, that system as a whole, because, Hey, you love your pastor and uh, maybe you, you love John Calvin or whoever, and, and swallowing that entire system whole, take it apart, uh, examine it, be the, be the Berean that tests everything according to scripture. Um, you see that great example there with Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, yet uh, the Bereans tested everything he said according to Scripture and found him faithful, and therefore accepted uh, accepted his message. Yeah, so I, I'm in full agreement with that, but I know that as I've tried to do that pursuit in my own life, uh, sometimes people have even charged me, going, "Who, you know, what do you think you're doing? Are you trying to start, you know, a, a group of?" Kohlerists, you know, the people that follow your uh, theology, and uh, no, not really, but, um, you know, the idea that that we stand on the shoulders of giants, I, I'm thankful for this theological conversation that has gone on. Um, at the same time, you know, are we not prone to potential error? And, and so, you know, every systematic theology that I look at, every confession, they never quote every verse in scripture. Uh, I, I mentioned before, I my probably favorite theologian to read is Dr. Norman Geiser, his systematic theology. I've read many times. It's my, my copies at four volumes. They condensed it into one eventually, but four volumes. If I stack it up on the desk, it's, I don't know, 10 times as tall as my Bible. And yet if you look in the index, he doesn't quote every verse either. And so as much as I love and value his perspective and the perspective of the historical analysis that he brings and, and all these things, uh, should we not be like Bereans? I think we should be, in which case we're probably going to find a word here or there that maybe we think could be improved. I don't think that that's being dishonoring to the past, but I've, I've heard that charge leveled against me because I have criticized aspects of these various systems. Have you encountered that? Or, or when you say, hey, I agree with everything but this one word, um, you know, do, do people just go, oh, we're, praise God, you're uh, trying to uh, be reformed and continuing to reform? Or do they say, oh, brother, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? What's your, uh, what's your problem? I haven't, I haven't read it or I haven't, met with that sort of attitude it's more the it's more the attitude well here let me show you why you're so simple-minded and you mm. and you you miss this point i mean it's it's perfectly obvious if you just read this one or two or three texts um yeah. how why are you so <laughs> why are you so incapable of seeing what is so clear to me uh, that you miss it no, kind that of is, the vibe that I get. That is a good question. I've wondered what your problem is on many different <laughs> occasions, but um, no, I, I, I imagine I, I, I jest, I jest. Uh, the uh, the reality is, I think that one of the biggest dangers is um, of these systems. And you know, I, I had sent you guys an article that I wrote back in February 2020 uh, about this kind of thing. Some of the concerns that I have of the potential dangers, and and since you know, I've kind of wandered over uh, different theological camps over my life, and now I don't really view myself as belonging to any of them. I, I see um, issues and problems with, with all of them. And as I try and talk with people, it seems that usually in our system, if there's some problem, some issue, some difficulty, we usually gloss over it or it is obvious to us. And we use terms like that, really downplaying the, the, the criticisms of others who are outside of the camp. We say it's obvious, it's clear. If you were smart enough, if you were spiritual enough, you would see these things. 
And then, um, you know, we, we appeal to mystery sometimes, you know, uh, and we do that for our own system, but we're unwilling to extend that grace to others who view it very differently. So, um, you know, I, I have some concerns about that, but let's, let's bring uh, Pastor Eric in. I know that you uh, have some uh, uh, deep thoughts about this as well. You've thought at least much about systematic theology. Uh, as you see it, you know, talking about the strengths, talking about the weaknesses, what, what perspective can you bring to this discussion today? Well, I think Greg was right when he said that we want to systematize everything. Uh, we want everything to fit neatly together uh, with everything else. We want ideas to be logically consistent with other ideas. Uh, I think those are reasonable uh, desires. And when we see inconsistencies, there's an alarm that goes off in our brain. Something is wrong here. There, there shouldn't be these inconsistencies. Um, so I, I think it's a reasonable desire to... Uh, to systematize things, to want things to fit together, uh, to want want there to be some logical consistency. And I think, uh, and really this is just echoing what Greg said, I believe God's thinking is logical. I think God, uh, God is a logical thinker to use, you know, human language. Um, and that's why man who is made in his image has a logical sense, I'll say. And, and of course, not everyone uses it properly, um, as we see today. Um, there's many examples of that, but man has a logical sense, and that logical sense comes from his creator uh, because we're, we're made in God's image. And this, this logical sense makes us want to organize ideas in a way that brings harmony to everything. We want, we want harmony, and, uh, and we, we don't want things to, to, to conflict with each other. Um, so, that, so that's where systematizing comes in. Systematizing comes in to, to attempt to connect all the dots to bring harmony to all the, these different ideas, to make them all fit together perfectly. And, um, and I, I think that uh, if the Bible is inspired by a logical God, which I believe it is, then we can expect the ideas in the Bible to be logically consistent. And so it, it, I, think it's, I think it's reasonable to expect um, consistency. I think it's reasonable to expect these ideas to fit together to form a, a coherent uh, system. And, uh, and if that's true, then pursuing systematic theology, I think, is a worthwhile endeavor. Eric, would you, would you agree, though, and I think you will, <laughs> I trust you will, um, that while we desire that, there are places in the Bible um, where there is still mystery, where there's still a tension. And so I think that's where a lot of our problems come in is when we see um, this, the tension that exists in some texts, um, we, we have to instantly uh, split into groups and we, we stand on either side of a, of a, of a mysterious tension and, and begin hurling stones at each other. Yeah. I, um, I think it's, it's true. It's certainly true that the Bible um, contains mystery um, and I, but I, I will say this though, and, and I'm, and I'm agreeing with you, uh, with this, Greg, that there are, there are definitely mysteries in scripture. There are things that are difficult to understand. There are things that there are truths that you would never arrive at just simply by making logical deductions. There's, there's things that just, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and I, I should make sure I'm clear about what I mean by this. Uh, the Trinity is a mysterious concept. Now, I don't believe the Trinity is illogical at all. As a matter of fact, I think that if you understand the Trinity the way the Bible teaches, there is no, no logical inconsistencies about it whatsoever. 
but it's mysterious. Uh, it, it, it's still a, myst- a mysterious concept nonetheless, because there are aspects of it that, uh, you know, that are maybe, I'll say, a little bit obscure, although I think the general idea is, um, is, is pretty, pretty basic. Um, but I, so there, there are, there are things that are hard to understand. Now, I, what I believe is that there are so sometimes certain systems might create mysteries where there actually is none. Uh, so I think we need to be careful too, that, you know, while we, while we are, while we humbly look at scripture and realize God is a big God to put it very mildly. And there are things that are very difficult to understand. There are things that are mysterious. Taking that into account, I I also realize that our systems can, you know, if, if we're looking at things through a wrong lens, we could be creating mysteries when the explanation is maybe a lot clearer than than we think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard someone as as they hold to a particular system and they get to a a particular text and they go, wow, this, this one's really hard. Um, you know, for instance, I had God bless him, R.C. Sproul. He's written a, uh, he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans and, and I was working through preaching out of the book of Romans at one point and I was getting ready to get to a particular uh, section of the text. I'm like, well, I, I appreciate R.C. Sproul. What does he say about this? And there were two verses out of this verse by verse commentary that were just absolutely absent well hold on <laughs> you you've committed to every verse but these two verses you've you just walked away from and and made no mention of and, and so yeah what, what i don't want to do is say they're mysterious therefore we can put them in a box and pretend like they don't exist and um, and not deal with them well sometimes we sometimes people appeal to mystery simply to to sort of dodge the issue and i've seen people do that uh and again, I'm not denying mystery. The Bible definitely contains mystery. But yeah, I think some people appeal to mystery to 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 avoid having to explain what some of these verses and, and concepts mean. To avoid challenging their presuppositions. Yes. Yeah. And we allow we allow mystery in our camp, but we don't allow it in the others because then we say that that's just uh, that's the that's for the soft headed. You know that they're they're glossing over their logical inconsistencies by appealing to mystery because their system uh, clearly has problems in it, obviously, you know, to us using these, these uh, uh, words, this appeal to just, you know, incredulity. How could someone believe something so foolish when it's so obvious to everyone who's not in that camp? Um, but those inside the camp, they say, oh, this is a, a mysterious doctrine that God has told us and, and we, and we believe it. Um, there's a, a exegetical, uh, book that I read uh, in seminary. Um, it's a pretty common book, uh, interpretational or hermeneutical practice uh, by Doug uh, Stewart and Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a, a good book. I don't know if you guys have read that or familiar with that, uh, but they talk about it. They, both of these guys are um, theology professors. They've spent time in the academic setting for, for many, many years. They certainly don't agree on every single uh, issue and aspect, uh, but both of them have had students come up to them with those exact problem passages that, that you were just mentioning, Greg, and they come with this question to these professors, how do I get around these passages? 
And sometimes if you're writing the commentary, the best way to get around it is just don't comment on it. Just leave it out. Just we drop that. We drop those verses out and we pretend as if they don't exist. And then the funny thing is we get to sit up on stages or we have these gurus and these 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 mouthpieces for these various systems who articulate all the points. And really, they're exactly the same as politicians. They've got all the talking points. And someone brings up these other verses, and then it's the same thing. They can scoff, and they can say, oh, the, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. You know, you point to these obscure verses as if any verse in Scripture is less inspired or any verse in Scripture is unimportant. And so— Well, that's how we do hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. we, we basically count up the number of verses for this mm -hmm. against the number of verses yes. for that. Whichever one has more uh, verses is what we believe. It drives me crazy. I, 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 I have— I've had so many conversations with people when I, again, I'm trying to be, and I, I'm sure I've done this to people too. So it's, I'm not, I'm not just pointing the fingers at, at other people, uh, especially as a seminary student. You know, I, I figured I had all the answers. You get a little longer in your, your walk with the Lord and you realize, okay, maybe, maybe there's more to some of this stuff than, than just the simple pat answers, you know, that I, that I learned. But I'm so sick and tired of having conversations where, you know, you're looking at a text of scripture that seems to say something so plainly and someone goes, ah, ha, ha, but it also says, and like, as if there's some Trump, you know, Trump verse somewhere else, like, you know, we're playing Euchre and ah, I got the last Trump card and we just throw this down. Like my verse is more important than your verse, but how, why is that the case? And so, you know, the, the article that I wrote that, that again, I shared with you guys, and I'll put a link to it just if anybody wants to read it to get some of my fuller thoughts. The overall concern that I have is that when I read the scriptures, uh, particularly the New Testament, I see these, these camps, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who I view as, as just this, this tragically ironic group. They're, they're, they're these people who are so um, outwardly, supposedly interested in the scriptures, and yet they're so indoctrinated into their individual camps that they miss the Christ, the one that Moses, the prophets and the Psalms was talking about as he's standing right in their midst. And Jesus says to them all the time, have you not read? You know, he tells them that they're nullifying the word of God with their traditions. And Greg, in our first episode, you know, you kind of pushed back just on the labels. You don't want to take the term Calvinist upon yourself, which I understand because you don't want to be, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. Have we done that with systematic theology? Have we just willingly run headlong back into that same error that the Apostle Paul was talking about by, by taking these names upon ourselves and then nullifying the Word of God with our traditions and you know saying, well, we, just, we either won't talk about these problem passages or we'll try and get around these problem passages, and without acknowledging that they are a problem, that maybe our system's wrong, we still just stay entrenched in that group and lob insults and fight and... and, and create disunity with others who believe differently because somehow we think that their problem passages are a bigger deal than our problem passages. What, what do you guys think about that? I, mean, I, is, I don't, is that a real I don't know how we can come to any, yeah, I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion besides that we have done that. Um, you know, I, I disagree with, with, with a particular person on, you know, a point of view and maybe they hand me a book and I try to hand them a book and I don't want to read their book. They don't want to read my, you know, you never let the side, you know, I've already, I already know what you believe because I read so-and-so who told me what you believe, or I, you know, I, I had this guy explain to me what you believe. So I don't need to hear you out. I don't need to hear your conviction and, and why, why you believe that the Holy scripture is or Holy spirit has led you to a particular conclusion. Um, I already know what you believe and I already know it's wrong. Yeah. So you're one of them, aren't you? The conversation you have. You're one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I find that unhelpful. Yeah. 
Uh, Eric, I mean, what do you, do you think? You're a pastor. You see this stuff in, in your context, or uh, are you immune from it uh, in, your, uh, in your particular group? Unfortunately, I'm not immune to it. I wish I was. Uh, yeah, I think whenever we're, um, whenever we are, you know, are following some kind of a teacher, uh, as, as good as they may be, we always need to view them with a small amount of suspicion. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a sinful kind of way. But what, what we need to realize is, as good as this teacher is, as persuasive as his arguments might be, as much as it seems like he knows his Bible, he's a man at the end of the day. And men are flawed in so many ways. And so we, we, have, to, uh, we have to take the things that people say um, and, and sort of, you know, be as honest as we can be and, uh, and realize, you know, sometimes people make mistakes. Uh, no one is beyond flaw. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's really, it's, you know, just realizing what man is. And man is, is not someone who can be, you know, we can trust people, but, you know, we're just, we, we, we view things from a cer- through a certain lens. We're very, uh, we can be very subjective about things. Um, we can be swayed by our feelings. So we have to just take all that into account and realize that, that you know, say, I'm of Apollos. Well, you know, Apollos may have some good things to offer, but at the end of the day, he's a man. Uh, and the same thing is true with, with, with any teacher, John Wesley or, um, you know, or John Calvin or whatever other John you're, you're following. Uh, there's just, we always have to approach these, these teachers with some amount of suspicion and not in a sinful kind of way. Well, I think maybe the word you're looking for is humility, right? Um, you know, I, I can, I can appreciate John MacArthur or, that continue to list Johns, um, but I can be humble enough to understand that he is a man just like me. Um, and so as I start to crystallize my system, uh, which again, I, I want, I want to have a system. Um, I want it to be somewhat crystallized, um, but I need to remain humble enough to, to acknowledge that not only could John Wesley air spoken up. No, for sure. And so, you know, Greg, I know that you as a, a church member, you've mentioned that you don't, you know, you don't, you don't fill the office of pastor. So you're a guy who uh, loves to read systematic theologies and study and, and try and crystallize your your own system. Eric, if a, if a guy like Greg was sitting in, in one of your, you know, the pews or chairs in your uh, uh, fellowship that you oversee as an overseer of a local body, do you get excited when you hear that someone's studying systematic theology? If they say, hey, I got this new systematic theology, I can't wait to dig into this. Or uh, would you have some some warnings and concerns maybe that you would want to share to them and, and kind of along the same lines of what you were, were sharing? Would you go further than that? Or would you just say, oh, bless you. I hope you hope you have an, a great time reading that uh, that, that big book. Well, uh, you know, when, when people tell me that they're studying theology or they're reading a systematic theology book, I, I always, it, it always makes me, um, I would say, well, excited and uneasy at the same time, <laughs> uh, because we are so impressed with smart sounding people. Uh, as a matter of fact, I knew, I've, I've known some in the past who they were, they, they just, um, uh, fell in love with uh, certain Bible teachers and just to the point where the person could not be wrong about anything. I mean, th- their words were just as inspired as, as scripture. And um, 
you know, just to use, uh, you know, uh, John MacArthur, you, you had mentioned John MacArthur earlier, you know, there's people I wanted to tell them, you know, are you about ready to ask MacArthur into your heart? Because it, it, it seemed like it really, it, it was, I mean, it, it was really going that far. And I thought, you know, I have respect for him. I have respect for him. I, I think he's, I think he's, um, I think he has some good things to offer, but he's, he's a man at the end of the day. And so am I. And so don't, don't venerate anybody that much. Uh, and, and realize that there are other systematic theology books out there. And I think some, I've heard people say, well, and, and again, this is not, I'm not insulting Calvinists, but it's just, I just bring this up simply because I've heard this so many times. They'll say, well, Calvinism is so logical. It's so logically airtight. Well, so are some other systems too. Uh, it just yeah. depends on your starting point. And I think that's, we have to just keep all that in mind. All, all those systems, uh, they are internally consistent. The problem is, mm-hmm. is that we don't, we can't reside completely inside the system. But even the cultists that knock on my door or, or the system that I come from, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, um, the, the systems themselves are internally consistent. They have mechanisms for dealing with things. Sometimes if they have some issue, you know, they even have um, uh, systems in place for continuing revelation. You know, in Roman Catholicism, it's the capital T tradition, like whatever we need to deal with, we can still deal with this. We don't need to stick to sola scriptura, but now we also have this other mechanism that allows us to continue to update as necessary. And so any inconsistencies we come to, we can, we can move past them and we can do that. And so internally, the systems, they are beautiful. You know, I mean, I have a, a, a philosophy degree, which is not anything I would ever recommend anybody go and get. Um, but, you know, you, you from, you know, being trained in, in formal logic as part of my undergraduate degree, you know, I can look at these theological systems and go, man, the logical consistency internally of these systems is really something to behold. However, let's not do what some of the commentators do of skipping verses. And if we keep all of the verses, does that then throw a wrench into the consistency? And Eric, you mentioned some of the things that you had of, you know, I can look at Calvinism, I can agree. Internally, it is perfectly consistent. If you were a, a full-blown five-point Calvinist and you hold to all these things and, and you stick with the doctrinal development over time that, um, you know, we, we've kind of, we've made a, a doctrine of sovereignty where God is so much higher than us. And um, certainly uh, then we have a, a logical conclusion from that, that, well, man could never affect God. God is the prime mover. So we don't affect him. He only affects us. And so then, you know, nothing that we do could ever actually cause him to be angry. And then, well, what do we do with all these passages that say that God is angry? Well, then we, we invent this really fancy word called anthropopathism, which is really exciting to say. Anthropomorphism. Smart. Yeah, well, so... No, no take, anthropopathism is what he's talking about. Yeah, so, so we got uh, God's forms, that's his arm, but anthropopathism, yeah, is, when God says that he's angry, he's not really angry. What he means is, and I'm like, now we have to have these gurus who come along, and it's almost like Gnosticism. We've got this secret truth where they know all the mysteries, they know all the secrets, they have all the insider stuff, and anybody else who's not part of the system, that's not indoctrinated, doesn't already take all those presuppositions, they simply look at it and says... I mean, I'm reading the Bible and God is angry like all the time about sin. And you say God isn't angry and they go, oh, you're a heretic, you know, out with you unless you submit to the system. And again, I have concerns about that. And, and I've found that, 
it's not just historically, like we have this, if you have uh, one person who attends a church on one corner that holds to a system, the opposite church on the opposite corner that has the different system, they don't fellowship with each other. They don't talk with each other. They, 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 they are closer to hurling stones across the street than they are to actually raising their hands and lifting their voices with one heart and with one accord, praising God. And I just, I don't know, I, I struggle with that. So if I hear that people are studying systematic theology, I, I, I have that same concern or that caveat. So just be careful that you don't get indoctrinated into that system. It's the same reason why I encourage people to read a Bible without notes. Um, not because I think that the notes are unhelpful, but I want people to actually spend their time reading their Bible. It's amazing. You look at a Bible with notes compared to a Bible without notes, it's three times the size. And, uh, you know, a, a John MacArthur study Bible, again, not to pick on him, John MacArthur has many wonderful insights about scripture. He's been a pastor a long, long time, but his name is huge on the Bible. And if he's got his notes, he's got three times as much to say as the word of God itself. And I've been a part of Bible studies where, you know, I ask like, what does this verse say? And they're like, well, my note says, or John MacArthur says, or this note says, or this commenter says, yeah. and like, you're not reading this at all. You're just simply, you're not being a Berean, you're being a, a MacArthurite, or you're being a, a Calvinist or an Arminian. Like, right, we're, we're just being these labels. I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. And it's so ingrained in our culture that um, I, I view it as a, a huge hindrance to unity when it could be such a blessing if we would do the system ourselves, if we would stick to the primary text. But many people, they don't want to do that hard work because I believe, this is part of the trick, and I, I'm interested in your guys' thoughts on this, I believe that we think we're doing the hard work by, by studying the systems when really that's the easy path. It's really easy to learn the talking points, the proof texts, and to kind of say, I'm I'm a five point this or a four point this, or here's my stuff. Cause we can do that in an afternoon. You can't read the whole Bible in an afternoon. You, you're just not going to be able to do that. Yeah. That's why. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I think the point you were making, Joe, is that uh, sometimes one's system can be used as a substitute for scripture. So rather yes. than using the Bible as the standard of truth, one system becomes the standard. So when deciding whether or yeah, not we, an we idea settle is for true, secondary sources rather than the primary source. Exactly. Yeah. So when we we're trying to figure out what's true, the idea is compared with one system, not with with Scripture. And going back to what you said, because you said, well, some of these people have, uh, you know, like they claim to have like secret knowledge. Like, you know, the Bible from beginning to end is talking about God being grieved over sin and uh, angry about sin, and um, God even God even uh, really likens himself to a uh, a husband who's been betrayed by an unfaithful wife. He makes himself out to be the victim, and yet there are all these people who say, "Well, God is 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 uh, he he can't be affected by what what man does. He's he's unaffected by our decisions, our choices." And we think, "Well, why would they believe that?" Well, the Bible says the contrary everywhere. Why would what would make them think that? And I mentioned people being impressed with with smart people, smart sounding people. You find that some of this, and maybe I'm muddying the waters here, but some of this and much of it comes from Greek philosophy. Yeah. Who are we to question Aristotle's view of God? I mean, isn't he the master logician? And shouldn't shouldn't we be taking what he says very seriously? I mean, look at how much influence he's had. But at the end of the day, he's he's not inspired by God. Uh, the Scripture is. So Scripture needs to be the final authority. Yeah. And so we, we have, um, as human beings, we have elevated our own reason 
And we are impressed with people who sound smart. And so when someone comes up with a system that sounds right, um, it, it is, it's, it's, um, just like any, uh, physical architecture, right? You see some huge building that someone built. You go and look at the pyramids or something. Wow, this is amazing that people could come up with this. We look at these, um, these theological monoliths that have been built, these systems, and we go, and we, we can have the same response. We go, wow, look at this, the intricacies of this. And, and yet at the same time, um, you know, I'm, I am convinced, and this is, this is probably, um, you know, a, a controversial statement. I don't, I don't mean it to be, but I'm convinced that, you know, when I talk to, uh, let's say, a Calvinist who uh, says that their primary drive is to uphold the sovereignty of God, I, I believe that they mean that in their heart. Um, I have heard many Calvinists who want to cling to the sovereignty of God say that anybody in the Arminian camp, that they're just lowering the sovereignty of God. Um, I've heard these claims made over and over and over again. And yet, as I look to the scripture, and then I look at the system of Calvinism, um, in my opinion, I quite frankly don't think that Calvinists have made a big enough deal about the sovereignty of God. I think that what they did is made something in their mind, something that they thought was the biggest, and quite frankly, it's something that is man-made, whereas God's sovereignty is actually bigger. And when I say that, I, I know that even as I say those words, when I've talked to Calvinists, they still think that my view of sovereignty is lower than theirs because of the, the way that they have um, been taught. And again, I, I know that we'll get into like all these particular issues at a later time, but I don't mean that to be controversial. I mean that to be a, like a starting point of conversation because um, as, the, as we look at these systems, I have to be aware of my propensity to... Uh, to try and fit God into a box that makes sense to me. And when we talk about mystery, uh, mystery is something that God has revealed to us. And, and part of humility in doing systematic theology is saying, I don't want to constrain God to my logical system, although I might want to have a logical system. He is not constrained to me. He is bigger. And so when God tells me things, for example, he says, I'm grieved, I'm angry. I don't like that you did this. What I want to suggest, and it seems radical in our day and age, is that God means exactly what he says. And that anybody Amen. who comes along and says, God doesn't mean that. He means something else because the logical conclusion is that God couldn't possibly be like a grieved wife who's been cheated on. So that imagery must mean the opposite of what it says. Where these doctrines that we've put together, um, like in Romans 8, for example, all of these things, this golden chain of redemption, these are all future things, but he uses the past tense, but they have to be future because our system says they have to be future. But even though they're in past tense, then we come up with some, some uh, you know, fancy sounding reason that past means future and future means past and angry means not angry. And like, what are we even talking about? The internal consistency at that point no longer makes any sense because it's, it doesn't bear any resemblance to scripture. And to bring that up again, people, you know, they, they get, they get incredulous and go, obviously you don't care about scripture. Obviously you don't know what you're talking about. I read this big fancy book and, and they all said this. And so you can't possibly be correct. They must be right. But they're men just like we were. They couldn't have made a mistake on this. Like, is that not a possibility? Is that not a fair question to ask? Yeah, for sure it is. Um, so for for those that feel like we might be playing a little bit of inside baseball, we keep referencing a doctrine about about God reacting to us. Um, and 
And that doctrine is called impassibility, the doctrine that God is without passions. And and that actually happens to be the topic out of the Second London Baptist Confession that I disagree with. It makes a claim that God is without passions. And so in fairness to the other side of the argument, there's also a doctrine called the immutability of God, the, the, the doctrine that says God does not change. And so people who, who read the doctrine of immutability, God is unchanging, which I hold to, amen, amen, and amen. Um, they see that. And, and they assume that also means that if God is at, if the Bible says God uh, views humans doing something and he becomes angry or God sees people repent and he becomes less angry, well, if you take that on face value, that means God has changed. And, and where the argument breaks down is I, I would say, no, um, that isn't God changing um, his nature has not changed at all his disposition towards his people has changed or dispositions towards individuals absolutely has changed um, but that doesn't that in no way affects god's nature and so i can hold to immutability with an absolute sure rock solid faith while rejecting impassibility and so yeah for those who are curious um th there is one other area the the 1689 says very clearly that the Pope is the big A antichrist. Um, and listen, I understand historically why they said that, and they might even be right. I just can't take that on as a confessional proclamation for sure, unquestionably the office or an individual Pope is the big A. So, um, but it's funny enough, um, I'm, I've been told that I can disagree with the Pope being the antichrist, but I can't disagree with impassibility uh, and still get a card membership into Reformed Baptism. I was going to so, say, these are some big okay revelations here. You're going beyond your one-word disagreement, but all right, one of those is, is okay. And the one other of those I can not. still be yeah. in the club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yep. Who gets to decide I, I like that? you Who a lot more, Who gets to decide Greg. which ones you can... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like you a lot more too, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> but who gets to decide, Greg, which uh, the, that test of fellowship yeah. of which words in there that we can disagree with and agree with? Who Who's the uh, yeah, arbiter? That, that's funny. Um I don't know the answer, but fortunately, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, because my goal isn't to be the best Reformed Baptist. My goal isn't to adhere to whatever today happens to be Reformed Baptist thought. Um, I want my mind conformed to the Word of God, and and I will happily take that um, wherever it leads me, even if it leads me to disagree with some some very smart people who I appreciate a lot and love a lot. Yeah, well, I, I will uh, maybe set your mind at ease. You will always be uh, my favorite Reformed Baptist in my heart. So, uh, sorry, Eric, you were about to say something. No, I, no, I, that was that was maybe the most helpful distinction we've made so far today. That um, when we're talking about God, I mean, whatever doctrine, whatever approach we take to, you know, figure out who God is, um, we we have to take that very seriously because God's character is of the utmost importance. And, um, you know, people say, well, you don't need to, you know, don't, you don't need to defend God. God's a big God. You, well, you do though. It, it, actually, God told Israel, he said, my name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, so they misrepresented God to people and God was, was very upset about it. But I, th I like what you said, Greg, and I think, and I think you're absolutely correct that, to, to say that God's immutability 
means that he can't change in any possible way whatsoever is radically absurd. And when God went from not creating a universe to creating one, that was a change of a, of a kind. Uh, when God the incarnation went from not creating man to creating man, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that's a change of of a certain kind. Um, but it's God's nature that never changes. God is God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's His nature. And so I think it's a very important he was leading Israel by a pillar of fire, and he's not doing it anymore, right? That there, exactly. there is that's, a change in what in what God was doing or what God has done. That, so that's exactly so that's, that's where exactly we become, right. And two, and we're just just really quick, and I, I'm just going to finish this thought, and you jump in. Um, this goes back to what we said originally. Like we want things to make sense, and when someone says God can't change in any way, and yet we see all throughout the Bible God changing in some ways common sense has to kick in and we go, okay, yeah, I guess immutability doesn't mean that God can't change in any conceivable way, which is what some people have, have claimed. So that's a, that's a great point, great distinction to make. Well, there, there are verses that uh, you guys mentioned this word tension before, and, and I, I think that there are many things that are to be held in tension. And we tend to, in our systems, we like to rest in one area or the other. Um, for example, there is a, a verse in scripture that says that we are to strive. And then there's a verse that says that we are to cease from striving. Well, well which one is it? Well, it depends on the context. Uh, to say that God doesn't change, um, that means what it means. But that doesn't become an absolute that then whitewashes the rest of scripture when we read something that says that God did repent or God did change his mind. And we go, well, which one of these verses is more important? And that's what, again, the heart of that article that I wrote, uh, even the heart of the question that I was asking you, Greg, who gets to make the decision about which verses of Scripture are more important than others? And quite frankly, right, it's, it's God. It's not, it's not anybody else. And so, you know, this is the, the, the tragedy, I think, that people don't realize how easily prone we are because of the desire you guys both said it. I'm, I'm in full agreement. We have a desire in us for things to make sense. We don't realize how quickly our mind begins to wander off from what the text actually says to what we think it means. And as soon as we wander beyond what is written, we are exceeding what is written, that's the area where the, the ground is so fertile for us to begin to fight with each other over things that we are constructing in our own mind, not things that God has said. And so, you know, look, the, the, the verse that, uh, you know, maybe is so close to the heart of every Protestant, right, evangelical, uh, talking about by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Hidden even in that verse is presuppositions that are fighting words, that we can fight over what should be one of the most uniting and, and clear scripture, you know, in all, in all of the testimony of scripture. And we say, ah, but what kind of grace? Is it provenient grace or is it effectual grace? And we're already fighting because we're going beyond what the text actually says to say, well, my camp defines grace in this way. And if you don't define it in this way, then we're going to fight over something like this. The same thing with, with uh, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all of creation. We go, ah, 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 but does God regenerate before someone has faith or does someone have faith and then God regenerates them? And we sit and we argue with each other and disobey what God has told us to do. Yes, that's good. Thank you for clarifying. We obviously. could settle that one. Um, yeah, obviously. It's so clear. It's obvious. Again, yeah. For those listening, um, it is the glory of, 
of God to cover a thing. And it's a glory of kings to, to, to uncover, to seek it out. And so as you hear us critiquing the sinful ways that we abuse systematic theology, please do not hear me. And, and I would assume my brothers would agree. Don't hear us saying, don't search it. Don't try to figure it out. Amen. Don't uncover it. Because because we are talking about God. We are talking about what he's revealed. We're talking about his son. And these things are, we're talking about the promises that he's given you. Search them out. Seek them out. Um, just do it with wisdom. Do it with humility. Do it seeking to be led by the Spirit each and every day. And that's the point that Paul was making when he was writing. He says, some of you are saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus. And, and he says, we're all on the same team. And so, you know, I, I've met so many people who they want to, you know, condemn John Wesley or, or Charles Wesley, or they want to condemn, you know, uh, John, John Calvin. Why? Why can't we read these things and glean from them the good and then say, you know what? Maybe I disagree with this point. Is is that okay? I mean, all right, I think maybe you were maybe too close to Martin Luther, for example, maybe a little too close to Roman Catholicism. I think you were maybe off a little bit on your understanding of, of communion because you just, your context, you couldn't see past your own day, right? Um, and so now I've got a little bit of time, a little bit of perspective. And, and then I want to have conversations with people who view things differently because, quite frankly, you guys are better equipped to see my blind spots than I am because, by definition, they're True. my blind spots. And so I am better equipped to see yours than you are because, again, the same thing. You can't see them because you're too close to it. And so when we shut off communication and we, we break unity, or are unwilling to even admit that maybe I am the one who's got this wrong. Maybe I have been um, too driven by my own logical rigor in thinking that these things follow when quite frankly, they could be, but not necessarily. And the, 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 all of the systems that we look at, they are incredibly intertwined. You start to pull on one doctrine here or there. One of my theology professors, he called it a tapestry. You, you know, tapestries, they, they have a picture on the front, but on the back, they've got all these, you know, cords everywhere. And you start pulling on one of those cords, it, it affects the picture in unexpected places. And so, you know, the, the idea of God being impassable, that's not a doctrine that really stands alone. We can talk about it alone, say that God doesn't have passions, but that's also interrelated to how we view God in his interaction with time. Does God actually interact with creation in time or does he stand outside of time and if he's outside of time then all of his interactions with people well he's not really angry because you know everything is outside of time and so you know we do have these influences of aristotelian logic and and greek philosophy and man-made systems over time that have really influenced the way that we think about these doctrines and and we don't even realize it and so we do we take that all in anytime that we we kind of take a system and I at least want to be humble enough to say, you know what, maybe there is some value. Maybe I, you know, look, I don't agree with with John Calvin on, on everything, but do I think he got everything wrong? No, of course not. Are there interesting things that he said that I, I can look at and go, man, I'm thankful for these insights. I'm thankful for his rigor. Um, but likewise, I don't want to say John, John Wesley's a heretic. I don't ever want to hear anything. No, he wasn't a heretic either. I, I believe that they'll both be in heaven. And, and there was a, I don't know, there, there was a, a time, I think, when, when Christians didn't fight, but it was, it was brief. And then as soon as we get, you know, um, I don't know what it is, comfortable or, or we just, 
it's so most of the new testament exists because people we deviate right away you know god tells us something through the apostles or or through christ himself and then we kind of i don't know we run with it and we we make something else of it and that's why we need to always be going back to the primary source always be going back to the scriptures and um that kind of gets you know it's not just our responsibilities individuals but the teachers that we have it's a dirty little secret that many people in ministry um you know, they, they studied at a denominational place. They, they have a denominational label. Um, and that's all they do is they preach the doctrines. You know, they, they, they never, they can be in ministry for 40 years and there are passages that they will never preach because it's not part of the system. The commentaries skip those verses. They'll skip those verses. Um, they're just going to hit on the doctrines. People can sit in these churches for years and years and years, and they don't grow beyond the first year because after the first year, they're just repeating. They're hearing the same doctrines articulated in the same ways. It becomes the test of fellowship. Anybody who comes in here, they have to say the right buzzwords. And we're, there, there are certain verses we're never going to get to because, quite frankly, they just they make us too uncomfortable. They don't fit our system. And I have concerns about that. And I, I offer that, Greg, I, I appreciate that you said the words that you did. I'm not trying to tear anybody down. I want to build up. And I view that these things, these are these are hindrances to unity, that if we would be willing to reevaluate, maybe we could have some greater unity as we look at these other verses that maybe make us uncomfortable and say, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to have this conversation. I don't want to point my finger at you and call you names uh, and break fellowship with you because you reject this one word or this, you know, this whatever, but let's actually sit down and talk about this and, and see what does God actually say? What does he say? And then let's go and live in light of what he said. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm in a position to offer counsel to pastors, but if I could, um, my advice to you, especially in your preaching ministry, is do your homework. Um, stop copying off of other people. You know, that when I hear errors in sermons, now I, I listen to very sound guys, right? I'm, I'm not I'm not trolling through a lot of uh, crazies. But when I hear problems in sermons, I can go, you know what? I know you didn't look that word up in a lexicon. I know, I, I can tell right away, you found that in a commentary, because if you went and looked that word up, you would never come to the conclusion that you just came to. So do your homework. Um, please stop, I mean, make good use of those giants whose shoulders we stand on, but, but do your homework for your sermon, for your people, as you serve your God. Well, as a pastor, I, I, I'm not offended by that, Pastor Eric. You're, you're a pastor. You, you offended by that uh, uh, counsel from a non-pastor? Not at all. And I'm, I'm open to, uh, open to uh, suggestions and criticisms, and uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. We, pastors need that. Past, pastors do need that. You know, we, 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 um, we've been talking about we need to go back to the Word. We need to go back to the Word. Maybe we should actually maybe we should be specific, though, and explain what we even mean by that. When we go back to the word, what are what are some uh, what are some methods that we could that we can use uh, to to try and maybe bring more clarity uh, to you know to these things, especially when we're teaching people, but also just just arriving at our own conclusions, because I think there's methods we can use that while you know they they they'll never you know eliminate all error. They at least can help us narrow our margin of error, and I, yeah. I was thinking of like, well, you know, 
Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, well, I, you know, I know next week, unless, you know, Lord willing, next week we're going to start talking about eschatology. And I think our, well, actually, I'm quite certain our problem in the church with eschatology is a lack of a consistent hermeneutic. How do we read the text? How do we study the text? And what we don't like to admit is that our hermeneutic is part of whatever system we've already adopted. We we approach the text with a particular lens based upon what camp we belong to. And so, you know, what I would say is we need to, before we even pick up the text, you know, let's, let's wipe our lens clean. Let's make sure we're using the right lens uh, so that we, we see the text properly. Yeah, we're always going to come with something. I think we can even just be explicit about what that is. You know, I don't know. Um, I, I wish that I could wipe the lens completely clean. I think that that's a good thing to aim for. Um, I'm not sure that I'm capable of that. Like, I, I have... I have a lens that I'm going to come to. And so I want to be at least honest about that for myself and just say, well, I, this is the lens I currently come from. Um, I am capable of hearing the lens you come from and then, you know, picking that one up for a bit and, and looking at the scripture and go, does this, does this make more sense? Does this fit better? And that's been very helpful for me in the past to, to do that. Um, but one of the things that I would say to that, Eric, is one of the methods that, that I've been convicted of uh, is to preach bigger sections of Scripture and to, to really keep Scripture together in its, in its context. When I first started my preaching ministry, I, I'd, I'd preach a, a verse or two or maybe a paragraph at most. And, um, and now I, I often, it's not uncommon for me to preach an entire chapter or, or even more in one sermon. And I think that, um, you know, when I first got started in ministry, one of the things that I kind of thought that people wanted is they wanted to see, they wanted to see me, um, you know, being that quote unquote smart guy that did all the homework, read all the commentaries, brings in the quotes, and then and they can come to me and go, wow, it's obvious that, that you earned your paycheck this week, that you were really digging deep, you know, and studying these things. Um, and I think that the fruit that I saw of that uh, in, in my context, and again, I won't speak for everybody, but just what I saw is that often I would see people who would leave impressed with what I said, but who would live exactly the same as they did before they walked in. And so I wanted people to actually get to the word. And I realized that me making things seem so complicated, me kind of digging in and, 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 and parsing every Greek word, people go, wow, I don't know Greek. So, you know, I just, I need to make sure I come and listen to you. Um, I don't know that I was doing anybody any favors. Um, and over time, it became, I guess, clear to me that my job as a pastor isn't to stand up in the pulpit and make things seem so complicated that people say, I could never understand this, but I'm so, I'm so thankful for this wonderful teacher with his amazingly wise words so that we can come here and, and put the money in your basket and just listen to you, you know, with these eloquent words. Now, my job as a pastor, when I go up into the pulpit, I think is to make scripture seem so clear and so obvious that people would even ask, what do we even pay you to do? Like you go up there and you read God's word and it, it, you just, it, it means what it says. And I could read this. Like, why do you, are we, are we paying you to preach? And the answer is no, you're not paying me to preach. Actually, there's, you know, pastors work more than just 30 minutes on Sunday morning. That's not really the role of an overseer just to give a speech every Sunday, right? That's not really, yes, that's not, oh. That's not what you, that's not what you should pay your pastors for, in my opinion. Um, and so, the idea that that systematic theology can be a benefit, I think, is is real. But 
to get to the heart of what you just asked, like what could be some of our methods? I think sometimes systematic theology makes, makes theology inaccessible to regular people. And the question is, who was the Bible even written to? The, when, when Paul wrote down and wrote to the churches of Galatia, he wasn't writing to their theologians. He was writing to people. And so like these esoteric, like deep doctrines that everything's so confusing, everything's so, you know, like every word that I see, I got to bounce to a thousand different cross references. And I'm, you know, people are, they're, they're, they're getting a cardio exercise work in as they're trying to flip from page to page in their Bible, or, or some of them, they just give up and they go, just put it on the PowerPoint. I'm not even going to open up my Bible because I could never do this. Then we take the Bible away from people and say, you could never understand this. Let me tell you what this means. You, you can't go home and read your Bible because you never know all the cross references. You'll never be able to get into, well, this Greek word means this and it comes from this place and it does this thing. And, you know, really, I, I just, I don't know that that's helpful to anybody. If people would just sit down and read their Bible, they'll start to see like, whoa, all right, the stuff that we've talked about, it's in here, but there's this other stuff too. Can we talk about this other stuff? Like, you know, we learned that that God is this way, but these passages seem to suggest something different. Um, does it mean what it says or am I misunderstanding it? And I don't want to get around it. I just be like, yeah, it means it means what it says. Now, does that mean that we always understand it the first time we read it? Of course not. We have to keep reading. We have to talk about it. Um, but big sections of scripture and trying to actually let scripture speak for itself instead of saying, oh, this verse has to be read in light of every other thing. Is that what, I mean, do you guys think that when, when they received uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, for example, that they had to turn to Revelation and then they had to turn to the, the many of mine, they didn't, they didn't even have these letters. So they couldn't have done what we do. And we say that that's necessary. I, I'm suggesting maybe, maybe it isn't. I think it's important when you said that, uh, you had, you had said that, you know, these epistles weren't written to PhDs. They were, you know, they were written to the to, to churches. Uh, actually, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I'm not writing you anything you can't understand. Uh, so apparently he, he, he never intended to get super deep where they needed to, to, to find, uh, you know, Kittle's Greek lexicon and, um, and, you know, search these things out. I mean, it was, what he meant was, was fairly straightforward. So I think we need to beware when someone is explaining or trying to explain a verse and they're using the most ingenious interpretation, probably what that means is they're not very confident in, in their beliefs. And they, so they have to, they have to work the way around that and ingeniously interpret the verse. So they don't have to take the plain meaning because the plain meaning would contradict their whole system. So I think it's important to do that. I think what we need to do, and maybe this is what you guys are, you guys are kind of are saying this anyway, or at least that's the impression I get is let's look at what scripture obviously says, and let's use the plain and clear teachings to help us understand the difficult teachings. So you don't start with the super obscure, difficult stuff. You don't start with revelation and then work backwards. You know, you start with the the clear and con consistent teaching of scripture. You use that to help you interpret the more difficult passages. And I think if you do that, I think uh, you're going to, you're going to at least narrow your margin of error. And I will say this too, maybe this is going to sound bizarre. Maybe you tell people, and this has been my, this has been my approach in, with some doctrines is I say, okay, here's what one view teaches. Here's what the other view. And let's, let's look at both and look at the, look at the pros and cons of both and uh, and see which one we we think is is most reasonable. So and and if you don't know which most reasonable, then here's what you should do: don't have an opinion at all. P 
postpone judgment. Hmm. You don't have to have an opinion on every single doctrine. There are there are fundamentals you do need to you do need to have nailed down, but other things you can just be undecided. As crazy and, and unsophisticated as that sounds, I don't have, have to make a position. Yeah, sorry. So go ahead. Grace. I, I have a, I have a friend who who calls himself a, a pan millennial when it comes to eschatology. You know, there's all millennial and post millennial. He's a pan millennial. He believes it's all going to pan out in the end, mm. and, and so he doesn't. I mean, obviously a joke, but to to your point. Um, you know, in, in talking about unique, complex ways to get to the text, um, yes and amen. Um, but as the Thessalonians got their letter, they had certain contexts and, and they understood things that Paul was saying better than we understand it today without the research. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you in any way, only pointing out that, that there is contextualization that we do, that work does need to be done. Um, I think it can and should be done by every Christian, um, but it's particularly important in the sermon or in a Bible study. Or yeah, no, using using context is important and understanding context. All I'm saying is that no matter whichever system that you're in, you could listen to a hundred different pastors preach that, and they'll all go to different verses to explain the necessary context. Yeah, and they I don't agree. agree with each other. And then, of course, the people who are sitting in there hearing don't agree with each other. And the, one of the main problems, in my view, to get back to, to just the, the, overall, the overall method, is that, quite frankly, many people can't do where you guys started. They, they're not Bereans. Why aren't they Bereans? Because they don't know the source material. They know what they've heard their whole life. They know what they've been indoctrinated into. They know what the uh, pastors that they've you know, hired have told them. But many people quite frankly, are very unfamiliar with God's word because they well, haven't. As I it. told you in my testimony, um, I spent what probably something like eight years in the church to the best of my recollection, never hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, does that mean that every church out there isn't preaching? No. Um, but you can be sitting in church a long time being fed, uh, fit on rubbish in some cases. I remember the first time I, I preached on the book of Nahum, and I pr preached from That's Nahum chapter 1. That's a book in the Bible? It is. Nahum. Uh, oh! Preached... <laughs> Nahum, yeah. And so, so I preached on the book of Nahum, chapter 1, a beautiful, amazing uh, uh, chapter. And as soon as the sermon was over, uh, a guy came up the aisle. This is a guy who had been sitting in church every Sunday for 30 years, and he was kind of chuckling. And he said, when you said, open your Bible to Nahum, I thought you were kidding. He said, I, like you guys, you guys were joking, but he said, I didn't even know that was a book in the Bible. He sat in church for 30 years, never heard a message from Nahum, and he himself had never read it. He didn't know about it. That's concerning to me. In fact, Eric, you're, you're a, did you go to seminary, Eric? No. No, okay. Um, I know that uh, I've talked to a lot of guys who are seminary trained, who have a degree that says that they are experts in the Bible, and some of them have never actually read the entire Bible. They've read parts of it, of course. Maybe they've read the whole New Testament, but there are parts of it that they would acknowledge that, now nah, I've never read. There are some of the minor prophets I've never read. There are books in the Bible that I've never read. These are experts. They stand in the pulpits. They teach. They lead ministries. They, sometimes they write books. They haven't read the primary material. They just take for granted that the system that they've been taught is correct, and 
And so, I mean, if you do a, do a, a, a poll in your local church, ask people, how many times have you read the Bible cover to cover? It's not a lot for most people. And I, I got pushback. I wrote a book, uh, read your Bible, uh, every word, read your Bible in 90 days. I got pushback from people saying, ah, you should, you should never read your Bible that fast. Really? I mean, I can make a case that you should read it faster. Before I wrote my first book, I sat down, I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation once a month for 10 straight months, 10 straight times of just reading the Bible, just every single day, 40 chapters, every single day, never taking a stop. That was more important to me in my understanding of Bible knowledge than getting my seminary degree, where I read countless secondary sources, but wasn't encouraged to read the Bible to that degree. And if people would, would do that, man, they would know the scriptures so much better, and then they would be better able to read the systematic theologies and glean the good from it. They'd be better able to sit under my teaching or your teaching, Eric, or listen to, to anybody else on a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever, and not just do what their ears, what sounds good to them, but say that's what God's word says. And I remember, you know, I, I've, I've been encouraging my children to read the Bible for themselves. So they're not just taking my word for it or, or other people's words for it. And um, my son, my oldest, he's 16 now. He was a great reader at a young age. He started reading the Bible, um, not a kid's Bible, the full Bible at the age of six. Was he getting everything out of it? Of course not. I, I don't get everything out of it. So, I, you know, but was he getting something out of it? Yeah, he was. He was getting something out of it. And I remember we were driving in the car, listening to a Christian radio station, and some ad came on, and somebody was saying something which I thought was nonsense. And he's in the back of our van, and he pipes up with his little seven-year-old voice. He goes, that's not right. <laughs> the discernment of a seven-year-old. Why? You know why? Because instead of having him read a children's Bible where you know we, we pretend that Noah's Ark is a happy story when it isn't, we gave him a real Bible. And by him actually reading the real source, even as a seven-year-old, he was able to discern error from a quote-unquote popular teacher who grown-ups will go and buy tickets to go and listen to them tell them error. And, and there's was a dirty the... little secret. There's a dirty little secret when it comes to people who write books. Um, and I found this out the hard way. If you start reading uh, Christian material critically and you start looking up, you know, text says that and they, they give a scripture reference. Those authors, not all of them, of course, but there are plenty of authors out there who are relying on you not looking up their text. You know, because if you go and look it up, a lot of that's not the point the text is trying to make, or you've 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 just given references after what you've said, trusting, hoping, depending on the fact that they're not going to look you up. Because they quickly, you know, the reader will quickly come to the conclusion, you're all, you're wrong. Yeah. That's why if you put the verse on the PowerPoint, nobody can see the surrounding context. But if we'll open it up and actually read it, we'll see that often the people that disagree on any, pick anything, right? Uh, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Often the, the guys that are teaching the opposite doctrines, they're in the same ballpark. They just, you know, one reads the first part of a verse and then the other one reads the next verse. And so usually there is a tension that's presented in Scripture about the fact that God is sovereign. Of course he is. And the fact that God cares about the decisions that we make. And this isn't a great mystery necessarily. I mean, it's been told to us. It's obvious by our experience. It's obvious in Scripture. And then we have to fight about it because of the conclusions that we say that, you know, we somehow say that if man actually has responsibility, then God couldn't be sovereign. Well, that disagrees with what scripture says. 
Scripture says God is sovereign and man is responsible. And so instead of coming up with a system that says that we have to say, well, man isn't really, or God isn't really, we just should just go with what it says. And, and okay, there's tension in some of these things. And, and again, most of the systems, they resolve this in some way. Um, but depending on, again, who you're talking to and who thinks that they get to decide, you know, how much we can drift. Um, I'm like you, Greg, I don't, I don't really care. I'm not going to stand in front of you know, John MacArthur is not going to be my judge. John MacArthur and I are going to stand before the same judge and we'll stand there all alone. And I don't want to stand before God someday as a pastor and as a preacher and teacher and say, well, uh, you know, I just preached what, what my John MacArthur study Bible said, or I just preached what R.C. Sproul said, or I just preached, you know, what, what Jacobus Arminius said. Like, I can't do that. So your admonition, I have to do my homework because I'm going to stand in judgment all alone. My teaching, the stricter judgment that I will face as a teacher, which, my goodness, that that we ought to take that seriously. I can't just stand up there and, and say, well, this commentary says this and that commentary says that. I have to do my homework. And Eric, I know as a, as a, a teacher, I'm sure that you feel that same burden. We can't just, you know, take take it easy and say, well, I just, this is the commentary that I've got. And so uh, I just tell you what it says. Um, I mean, being a pastor, there's much more to it than that. I think, I'm sure that you agree, at least I, I hope you agree with that. Well, I do. <laughs> I, I, I do agree with that. Um, Paul told uh, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. So there's a responsibility on our part to study. If we don't study and we're lazy and uh, careless with it, uh, then the soul, our soul, and the souls of those we're shepherding are at stake. Paul to also told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, uh, persevere in them, and if you do, you'll save both yourself and your listeners. This is, a, this is of immense importance. And, it's, it's, and, and I would say in some cases, it's a matter of life and death, spiritually speaking. So it's, it's a very big deal. And I'll, I'll extend the application, about, um, because I... Sorry, I want to extend the application because I know we're we're directing this towards towards pastors, uh, but I want to direct this towards fathers and and towards individuals as well. Sure, sure. There's a there's a there's a broad application there, um, for sure. So I, you know, Joe, you had mentioned earlier, like there's there there are these, and I'll, I guess we can call them false dilemmas, where well, there's human responsibility, but then there's, but then there's. Uh, you know, there's God's sovereignty. And I, I think it's, 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 it's frustrating talking to people because they, I, I've talked to people in the past where they say, well, God is so sovereign that he literally controls everything that happens. And then they're mad at you for holding the position that you do as if you could do otherwise. Um, so yeah. sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's, um, it, it's, it's interesting that people don't stop and think, what is it that I believe and what are the implications of, of my beliefs? But, we, so we have to really, I think, st just stopping and thinking about what we believe and what we're, what we're teaching. Um, God told Israel in, I, in the book of Isaiah, he said, your problem is you don't stop and think. You cut a tree down, half the tree you use for firewood, and the other half you shape into an idol and worship it. And basically God's saying, that's dumb. Like your, your problem is, is you, you don't stop and think. So I think just stopping and, and really analyzing not only what we're believing, not only what we're teaching, 
but why am I teaching this? Am I doing, am I really trying to, to present the word of God as honestly as I can possibly do? Or, or am I trying to like, just hang on to these doctrines for my own benefit because I, I personally like them and prefer them? I do think that people like that and it's easy. Um, and as we begin to maybe wind this conversation down, I want to get to a very particular example. And, um, you know, these, these things are, you know, these aren't, these aren't just theory. This is, this is real life that we're talking about. A friend of mine uh, who was in pastoral ministry for, I think, three decades, 30 years, he was a, a faithful pastor. He and I, you know, uh, believe the same gospel, but, but disagreed on almost, I mean, almost everything that you can disagree on and still be, you know, still be brothers in Christ. And he was a part of a particular denomination. Uh, he comes from that Calvinistic lens for sure. And uh, his last sermon he preached um, from one of the Hebrews warning passages that Eric, you mentioned, uh, you know, was, was in, influential for you, um, kind of in your move out of Calvinism. And, and he said to, um, to great laughter uh, in this group that he had avoided these passages for 30 years, 30 years of ministry. He had, um, every time, you know, he thought about, pre- he, he just didn't. And so, and, and instead of people gasping or being, oh, you know, our pastor's hidden this from us for 30, they, people just laughed because they know, you know, like, and, and he, he was basically saying, you know, this makes me uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, so we just, we just don't talk about it. And for many people, you know, we, we don't, we don't think about it. We don't, we don't want to go to these other verses because quite frankly, we, we just, we don't really care. We, we like certain verses. So we read those over and over again. And there's other verses that we just were uncomfortable with, or we don't understand them. So we're just like, ah, that's, that's probably not important, but God gave us every word for a reason. And so, um, you know, if we hold to the systems without thinking, um, this kind of stuff becomes normal. It becomes just, that's, that's how we do it. You know, there, there's just stuff we don't talk about, but if we look at these things, um, you know, Eric, you mentioned that, that you were part of a system because you were studying God's word. There were verses that, that they just didn't fit and you sought out the explanations and they just, they seemed like they were forced. They were really just trying to, to conform this. And, and Greg, I know that, you know, you, even though you come from, that Calvinistic lens, uh, as you and I have talked, you see those warning passages as something that is Absolutely. not something that should be ignored. And so, you know, that, that really gets to the P and Tulip, right? The perseverance of the saints. Um, how, how do you, as a, you know, someone coming from that Calvinistic lens, um, how do you read a passage like these warning passages in Hebrews, for example, and still say that you're part of that kind of Calvinistic can't, but then, you know, have a willingness to see it from the other perspective. Like, I mean, how does that just work in your mind? Like as far as a practical reality, I guess. Yeah. So in particular, those, and let's be clear, those warning passages aren't just in Hebrews. They're all over. Um, And so that's where I go. I, I, I am not dedicated to my camp. Um, If, if whatever, whatever that camp, if it chooses to define itself as, as I've heard it defined, they, they will say, oh, those warnings aren't to Christians. Those are, you know, to, to people who aren't, well, that, that doesn't make sense. And so I am happy to abandon my camp when it comes to that. I think those warnings are there for believers. And so, um, yeah, I, (laughs) I forget where I was going now. Um, absolutely. I, I, I will redefine perseverance of the saints as, and and again, this is my definition of it. The perseverance of the saints are the saints 
prove themselves as saints as they persevere, as they overcome unto the end. Well, I think that that is a, a you know, a fair approach. And, and, you know, when we have a system and we try and in our own mind, uh, come to logical, consistent beliefs that, that really incorporate all the data that we're reading from the scriptures, uh, but having a willingness to deviate from the system when, um, when we encounter something that just quite frankly doesn't fit, I think that that's healthy. Um, others would say that that's, again, silly or weak-minded or perhaps even arrogant, right? That we know better than these spiritual giants from the past. But um, we are just human beings just like they were. Um, we're capable of making mistakes. And, um, you know, if I have that awareness in my mind, then when I come to God's word, I'm coming hopefully humbly to say, God, if I'm in error, show me. If I've, if I've tried to cram you into a box that, that is easy for me to understand or that is comfortable for me because it, it uh, allows me to do exactly what, you know, the Israelites were doing. I've, I've, I've made an idol in my mind out of half of this, you know, half of this thing that, that quite frankly, um, I would repent of that. And I would say, you know, I don't, my allegiance is to God. It's not to a theological system. The system is supposed to serve our obedience to God. It's not the thing that we serve. And, and in my mind, um, that's how systematic theology is the greatest benefit. We, we study it, we talk about it, we look at it. And then, you know, if, if, if one of you guys comes to me, and Eric, you said this, when people are unwilling to, um, I don't know, if they, like, I can't, I can't, I have to just stick to this, this terminology, or I get so defensive, that's that that lacks confidence. If you guys say you disagree with me on something, that doesn't hurt my feelings. I don't I don't get like super mad at you if you hold a position that's different than me. Um, I want to know why you think that, and I'm willing to hear you out. But I'm not going to just change my mind because you know you say something. But if you say, well, have you considered this scripture? And I go, well, I I have considered it, but maybe I maybe I was reading it with the wrong lens. You tell me how you read it. You tell me you know the context that you're coming from. Um, but, you know, th those ingenious ways of getting around this stuff, it's so funny to me how much work people will put in. And we're willing to, we're willing to do the study to find some obscure data point or to find some obscure uh, definition for some lexical, you know, entry for some word. Or even though it was never used this way in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it was used this way in some like old ancient Akkadian writing in one place at one time. And we're like, well, that, 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 that's, the, that's now the proof <laughs> that my system is still proof. consistent and coherent. Like, you know, you work so hard to keep that idol that you made out of a log propped up that you just can't, you can't let it go. Um, and, you know, I don't know, over time, you know, Christians have not only hated each other and broken fellowship, Christians have even killed each other over these disagreements instead of being willing to just look at the scriptures and say, what does it tell us to do? And, um, most of the stuff that's obvious, the clear stuff, the plain stuff, I mean, Eric, that was a great advice you gave us. Let the plain things interpret. Where did it say in Scripture, go into all the world, build a church building on every corner, hide inside of there, and hurl stones at Christians who believe slightly differently than you believe? Like, does it say that anywhere? Well, I if you look at so. the original Greek, you'll, you might yeah. change your mind. <laughs> that's true. No, I, I, uh, mm -hmm. If you could send me like an article on that, maybe I'll... Uh, you know, <laughs> Give me a break. So um, you guys got any final thoughts or words or anything that maybe you wanted to discuss before we uh, sign off for today? Again, I, I was with all these conversations, we could probably go on and on and on for hours, but I think we've hit it. You know, there are some benefits. There are some some dangers to to maybe avoid. But you got Eric, you got any uh, parting thoughts or words before us? And uh, Greg, will give you a chance to maybe have the last word on it. 
I think just approach scripture with humility and realize that you're not as smart as you think. I know I'm, I'm not as smart as I, as I thought. And, uh, I, I made plenty of mistakes along the way. And, you know, my, my quote unquote system, uh, has evolved over the years because I'm, I'm willing to, to change my mind on some things. And we'll talk more about that when we get into the specific topics in which I change my mind. So I think if, we need to be willing to change. We need to be willing to evolve. And that's painful. So expect expect the change to be painful. It's almost like, you know, if you, like a, abandoning a pet doctrine can be like going through a divorce. It's, it, sure. it's a very, it can be a very difficult thing. So be aware that change is painful and it requires a lot of humility. It requires you really to deny yourself and to be willing to say, I'm gonna, I'm willing to, to search for the truth, uh, no matter what this costs me. And I think if you have that attitude and you go to Scripture saying, I don't care what it says, I just want to know what it says. Yeah. Then I think you're you're going to be heading in the right direction. Yeah, no doubt. No growth. Growth get, definitely can be painful, and giving up uh, pet doctrines can be hard. So that's uh, that's well said, Greg. You have any uh, final thoughts on this this topic? Yeah, I, I would, first of all, echo everything that Pastor Eric just said, but then also remind you that we are talking about the study of God. We're, we're talking about knowledge of Him. We're diving in to very deep, uh, very beautiful, wonderful, awe-inspiring, joyful truths. So as you hear us talking about the dangers, again, don't avoid, um, don't avoid your inheritance um, because there are potential pitfalls. The study of God, the knowledge of God, um, having your eyes open to these things is it's a beautiful experience. So, yeah, don't rob yourself by letting someone else do that for you. Dig into your Bible, not as a um, an arduous task to be to be accomplished every morning for 15 minutes or whatever it is. But fall in love with with the message that God has maintained for you uh, for thousands of years. Oh, hey man, I I, uh, I love that. Reading the Bible shouldn't be a chore. It's a, it's a process of discovery because God has revealed Himself, and we ought to look to these things with with joy and anticipation, realizing that we didn't figure it all out. And now for the the rest of our earthly pilgrimage, we just uh, keep this you know view of God in our mind. But uh, but we can still be learning until we take our last breath and behold Him face to face. And I think. We'll learn a lot more about him actually when we behold him face to face. So it's it's a, a journey worth taking and and pursuing. And so, uh, well, as always, brothers, I enjoy uh, the conversation and the back and forth, and I appreciate your perspective on these things. If you're still watching and you got some value from this, uh, feel free to give us a, a thumbs up and uh, leave your thoughts in the comments below. What do you think about systematic theology? Do you find it to be all beneficial, all dangerous, somewhere in between? What do you think? You can let us know. And until next time, get equipped. Obey your king, glorify your God.